Shalom. This week, I learned something which blew my mind about Major League Baseball. Major League Baseball is exceedingly complex. They're scheduling games, arranging for travel, transportation, organizing and managing all equipment, and that's not to mention individual team management, running those massive stadiums, ticketing and concessions, radio broadcasting strategies to construct a roster, scouting, planning games, personnel issues with the big leagues and with the minor league affiliates. All of that has become increasingly complex and nuanced and full of technological innovations that are beyond the grasp of any fan, no matter how dedicated. But with all this innovation, with all this technological advancement, did you know they cannot play a single game of baseball until a certain anonymous club person rubs mud into every single ball? For those of you who are not baseball aficionados, let me explain. Apparently, and I'm not really all that much of an expert, but I just learned a lot this week. Apparently, baseballs right out of the box are too slippery for pitchers to really be able to hold. So for the entire history of baseball, players have been experimenting with different substances to try to make the ball easier to grasp for those pitchers. Initially, most players use just dirt from the field or spit from chewing tobacco, which is gross. And that resulted in a nasty looking and probably nasty smelling ball and one that wasn't really consistent for those pitchers. That was until the 1930s. Then major league player turned coach Lena Blackburn overheard an umpire complaining about the difficulty of preparing balls for a game. Lena decided he was going to do his own research. So he started exploring and trying different things out. And he found that the mud from our particular river near his house had almost magical properties. That mud, when rubbed gently into a beautiful new baseball, had almost no color residue and produced almost the perfect texture for a pitcher to hold. So Lena started sharing his mud and then selling his mud to teams who bought first from him, then from his friend, then from his friend's daughter, and today from his friend's grandson, Jim Bentliff. There was a great story in the New York Times about it this week. Dan Berry writes, it's wild to consider that a multi-billion dollar enterprise applying science and analytics to nearly every aspect of the game ultimately depends on some geographically specific muck collected by a retiree with a gray ponytail, blurry arm tattoos, and a flat-edged shovel. But this Hamish tradition of mudding baseballs is in grave danger. Why? It's not because of the efficacy of the mud, no. 
Despite all of the money that Major League Baseball has poured in, and they have poured a lot of money into labs and scientists trying to find an alternative substance that would have the same effect without the same mud, they've come nowhere close to identifying a substitute compound that will help pitchers with their balls. It's not because of supply chain issues or lack of availability, nope. Jim Bentliff and his wife Joanne, that's what they do. They gather mud, they distill it, they treat it like a French wine. They're ready to go. No. The reason this tradition is in danger is simply because of a drive for perfection and optimization. Mud is messy. It's old and feels antiquated. And it's anything but scientific. I mean, who can tell exactly how much muck you're scooping onto your fingers to rub onto a ball and exactly how you're rubbing it in? It used to be every Major League Baseball team had their own mud rubbing traditions. They all scooped in a different way and rubbed in a different way. But then executives in Major League Baseball worked to standardize that. They've since issued official guidelines for how to mud the balls. Not only have they issued these guidelines, which are exceedingly complex and detailed, but they've also required every Major League Baseball team to send videos of their personnel mudding the balls to make sure they're doing it right. But despite all of this standardization, despite the fact that it's been working up until this point, executives will not rest until they've ended this tradition, until they've found a substitute and erased the mudding which has nourished baseball and baseball fans for nearly a century. Reading this article, at first I was just chuckling to myself because mud and baseball. But the more I thought about it, the more uneasy I began to feel. Why is it that baseball executives are working so hard to change something that's fundamentally working? Why can't they be satisfied with what they have, with the traditions they've inherited? Why is it? Why is it that everything has to be so technological, so sterile, so new? This, of course, is not just limited to baseball. This happens everywhere in our lives. It happens at the airport where years ago, businessmen somehow convinced TSA to, talk, to adopt this millimeter scanner technology. You know, the one where you walk in and stand like this? Even though those scanners are significantly less accurate, even though they are significantly more expensive, and even though they take significantly more time, because of the sexy idea of new technology which was going to come in that could show new things. You know how many airports in the United States went for that machine. Also, if you're a regular travel to Israel, you know that Israel did not adopt that technology. This is something that happens for us in our work lives, where the drive to be technological and innovative 
means that so many businesses have adopted all of these different streams, Monday.com and Teams and text and email, which means that if you're an employee, you no longer have the time and space to focus on the task at hand. Instead, you're constantly being pinged and ponged with bings and bongs and different sound effects that make it difficult to focus and difficult to complete your task. And the technological innovations mean that most workers spend the majority of their time focusing on a screen and not connecting to the people around them, which results in a corresponding lower sense of happiness at work. No wonder so many people just want to be at home. And it happens for us in our personal lives, too. There's a sense all over that everything must be optimized. Every time, every minute must be used to its fullest potential. And so that means that tasks we once considered fulfilling are now no longer enough. It used to be you could just go for a nice drive in the car. You could be in the car, present at the wheel, going where you're going. But now, you've got to be doing something else. We have this sense you've got to be calling, using Siri to dictate emails. Laundry isn't just laundry. We're listening to podcasts. We're doing learning sessions. We're on Zooms. Every task of daily life now has this sense of urgency that we must fill it. We must optimize. We must add. And all of this means that we're losing the quality of life that had sustained us up until this point. I worry about that not just at the airport or at work or at home, but I worry about that too in our religious lives. At the beginning of the pandemic, we shifted to live stream, which was a godsend for us. It enabled us to be connected through the darkest months of the pandemic. It enabled us to gather together when we physically could not. But I worry that this drive for adding technology, this drive for optimization, is invading our spiritual lives too. Because when we watch a service on live stream, it's so tempting to optimize that time. You're no longer just watching a service, you're eating dinner, you're folding laundry, you're just running to the next room to grab that one thing you forgot. Oh, do you need a tissue? I'll be right back. And it's not just that we're multitasking, we're missing out. When you come to services, there's something magical about being in the room, about hearing the echo of voices around you about seeing the people that you know and love, the people you know by name and you call on the phone and talk to all the time, about seeing the people you don't know so well but you like, that you'd like to get to know, about meeting new friends. It's about checking out what's at Kiddush. All of these things make services so delicious. And when we're live streaming, we might be twice as productive, but I would bet it's half as meaningful. We're missing out on the qualities of the sanctuary that have sustained our people throughout time. Right now, we're in the midst of what our ancestors call the three weeks. It's the three weeks between when, in ancient times, the walls of Jerusalem were breached, and they just watched those armies massing on the horizon until they conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Obviously, we know that way back then, our temple was destroyed. There was nothing our people could do to stop it. But as we mark those three weeks each and every year, I always have the sense of, what if? 
What if they could have seen that threat with enough notice to have done something? What if they were conscious enough to make different choices that would have created a different outcome? And no, we're not back living in ancient Israel. But there are ways in which the walls of our sanctuary, of our holy temple, have have been broken. And maybe with enough consciousness, we can be awake to that threat before it destroys our sanctuary. Recently, I was talking with a young adult. She, I remember when she went off to college, she was so, so excited. She could not wait to get there, to learn, to grow, to explore. But college was really hard for her. There were so many pressures. There was the academic pressure. Seemingly endless classes and readings and essays, tasks. There was the social pressure, needing to build a whole new friend group, of feeling like she had to be at every party, at every social engagement, join every club, all the while being active on social media, seeing and being seen. There was the performance pressure, the sense that she had to find her career path, that she had to get competitive internships, that she had to be doing and doing and doing. And over time, her spirit just got beaten down. She was just feeling so depressed and so anxious and struggling so much. And she shared with me that just as she got to her lowest point, she had a transformative conversation with her grandmother. She was telling her grandmother about just how hard college was, how disillusioned she felt. And her grandmother started sharing with her about what life was like when she was growing up. Suddenly, this young adult had an epiphany. She decided that she was going to try living like her grandmother had 60-plus years ago. So when she went back to school, she did something novel. She brought a pencil and paper to class. And she took her notes on paper, left the technology outside the room. She put limits on her phone so it couldn't ping at all hours and prioritized time in person with her friends. And for her, the most radical thing came when it came to the summer. Instead of applying for a competitive internship, she got a job working at a coffee shop, which gave her time to read and to explore, and to laugh, and to swim, and to adventure. When I saw her, she was glowing. She was so happy and ebullient. She said to me, gotta tell you, old school is the way to go. So I'm here and I want to say we should be celebrating mud. Not just the mud in baseball, but the mud in our lives. We should be grateful for what we have, satisfied with what we have. Instead of working to double program each and every moment, we should try to be present here and now. It's time to embrace modernity. Please rise, page 184.